Tool podcast is sponsored by Queen's University Belfast. Researchers at Queen's are at the heart of supporting global efforts to understand the coronavirus. To discover more about their research, please visit qeb.ac.uk. My guest on today's In Conversation Slugger podcast is Andrew Hill. Andy is an Associate Professor in Philosophy at St. Phillips College in San Antonio, Texas. So Andy, thanks for being on the show. Oh, my pleasure. So the question we're all wondering over in, in Ireland is, what in the name of God is going on in America? So, <laughs> I, I imagine it's a question you're probably wondering in Texas as well. Mm-mm. It is. And uh, it's something that I spend a lot of time thinking about because as a philosophy professor, I work with students where we talk about the nature of reality and of the nature of knowledge and how we know what we know. And these questions are fundamentally at play right now in our society. I must, I must feel at times like you're living through a movie. I mean, it with does like COVID seem, first. And oh, then, it does seem very surreal. You're right about that. Are, are you worried? Because they always say these kind of disasters come in, in, in freeze. Are you, are you kind of waiting for <laughs> Godzilla or, you know? <laughs> I can't tell you. It does undermine people's sense of stability and faith and future in what's going to happen next. It, it leaves you kind of shell-shocked in a little bit because... You think to yourself, what can I really rely on when basic touchstones get thrown for a loop? Yeah, it, it is quite scary how quickly civilization can um, go down the tubes. Because I remember, <laughs> I kind of remember reading somewhere, like e- even in the UK, there's only something like uh, three days worth of food in the system. Because all, all the supermarkets and suppliers are set up with these kind of just-in-time systems. So any kind of disturbance to it, and the whole thing just kind of falls apart, which is kind of not very encouraging. Yeah, I, I remember Prince Charles, wasn't he recently telling people they needed to be prepared to go out and harvest vegetables? Yeah, which could be an issue in inner city London, you know. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> but you're right, um, it turns out we do have extremely complex social systems that we rely on, and... In the past, those institutions have been very durable, and we can forget about them. But now we get nervous about them. That's a big difference. Yeah, because America is a strange paradox of people are very committed to institutions in terms of like the kind of the military and and other structures, but at the same time, equally suspicious of, of big government. You know, it's, it's this kind of weird paradox between the kind of uh, love of institutions and the kind of hatred of authority. Yeah, in fact, that was one of the uh, the interesting things that's come up recently is that the approval rating for Congress actually ticked up. Now, again, don't get me wrong. It's very, very low. <laughs> but it ticked up in response to the fact that when people were digging into it, that it's because other institutions, ones that we had relied upon, were in question and people were looking for some sense of legitimacy and authority, somebody to tell them what's happening. And I guess any port in a storm, even Congress. Yeah, because I think um, things get weird. I mean, I, I suppose we were always suspicious that you could go three years into a Trump presidency without any kind of major disasters and it kind of seems all his disasters have kind of come at once uh, on the guy so i mean how do you think trump is, is kind of handling this uh i could tell you that 
it's it's a reflection of the country's take on it that his his approval ratings have dipped significantly and when you look at who's criticizing him and the job he's doing it is some significant republicans uh the fact that colin powell our former the general and secretary of state has come out and harshly criticized him for his response to the pandemic and to uh the the rallies and marches and riots that that that's a powerful voice in fact the former president of the united states republican president george bush george w bush has now said that he's not going to endorse uh president trump for re-election he's not going to endorse biden don't get me wrong but he's uh he's not going to campaign he's not going to vote for him that's shocking so and again an indication and an answer to your question which is that there's lots of people that do not think he's doing a good job including people who are have had significant roles in the republican party over the last few decades but do you think in some ways that maybe plays into kind of trump's uh, anti-establishment vibe that he can turn around to support and say ah these guys are the establishment they don't like me and i'm fighting them and all that type of stuff I think you're right that he's always kind of played at being the outsider. But, you know, the whole drain the swamp of all these people because only I can fix it. it it's not even playing well, though, with, with parts of his base. There's new data out this morning that says uh, that he's actually even tied here in Texas when they do head-to-head -head with Biden. That is incredible. And so um, I, you're right that it plays into uh, I'm different, I'm unique, I'm not part of the establishment, but you got to have a few followers to vote for you to get reelected. You just cannot, you can't ostracize everybody, even people in the Republican Party, and get reelected. I mean, on the subject of Biden, in a country of 330 million people, I mean, is the best person they could select really a 78-year-old with <laughs> suspected dementia? Uh, you're right that the problem is that we had, I remember, it seems like yesterday, we had two dozen strong candidates who were all fighting for attention and spots on the stage at the debates. And I was really encouraged by the fact that the Democratic Party had pulled together uh, a great field of candidates. And in part because they saw weakness. They thought, oh my gosh, this is the year to run because we've got an opponent we can beat. But then as we began to whittle away and whittle away and people dropped out, uh, I, I, I think it surprised a lot of people that the system spit out Joe Biden at the end of the day. But it's a reflection of the fact that he has been around for decades. He is well known. And and this makes a difference, especially now. He was Obama's guy. He was Obama's right hand guy. He was the vice president for eight years. And that just it made a big difference in the process when suddenly because if you remember, Bernie was the guy that cleaned up in Iowa and marched into Vermont and he was doing well, but then all of a sudden we got to the big states with large African-American populations, 
And suddenly, when you got to big states, boy, that just I think name recognition alone made a big difference. So Biden is the is a safe pair of hands, essentially. He's the name you know exactly yeah. right. So, uh, okay. and that, uh, who, who's you? Who's going to be your prediction for his running mate? Because I imagine for a seventy-eight-year-old, <laughs> that's going to be a, a pretty crucial factor. Isn't it? it is, and it turns out that um, there's obviously lots of speculation now within the party, especially about who would be the strongest candidate and what's valued. Now, he's already made a commitment that he would choose a female running mate. Obviously, given the marching in the streets, there's going to be pressure to have uh, it be one of the many qualified African-American women who are available. I think that that right now, the environment gives an edge to Kamala Harris and um, and, you know, maybe even to. to Rice, that's an interesting pick as well. Um, I can tell you that, uh, I don't know. I think the odds-on favorite right now has got to be Kamala Harris. She's She's got experience. She even appeals a little bit as a former attorney general to the, you know, the crime, law, and order people in the middle. I don't know. She, she just ticks a lot of boxes right now. So we'll see what happens. Not uh, Elizabeth Warren, in your view? Elizabeth Warren, I like. And I think she would bring a lot. Um, and uh, there's two things about that. One of which is she might just be seen as being too far to the left by Biden. I, who, I think he's worried that she got too close to Bernie and that that's a, that scares him. And the people that are trying to bowl this right down the middle. Kamala Harris would be a more conservative choice. And I think at some point the calculation is uh, we just don't want to blow it. It, They're going to be conservative in the choice. It's like going back to Clinton when he got the nomination and picked Al Gore and people threw up their hands and said, what two white Southerners Mm -hmm. and, uh, and Clinton was like, yeah, because we we don't want to blow this. It, it, it's the pressure to go back to the center. And so I think Elizabeth is who I would love. I'd pick her in a heartbeat. Uh, I think she's going to end up being seen by Biden as too far left. Not by me, but by Biden. So just here, I'm just checking out. So Kamala Harris is half Indian and half half black. Is that right? So it says your mother was from India, her father's from Jamaica. That sounds right. Yeah, that would be quite a get a few constituencies there, wouldn't you, on your side? <laughs> well, and again, part of what uh, now again, the I mentioned Rice, Susan Rice, the former national security advisor. What's interesting about her is um, she would bring a lot of experience as well. But boy, you're not kidding about Kamala Harris. She um, she does have lots that's appealing in terms of not just uh, her, fa- like you said, her family story, her history and heritage, but also um, her experience. She was a good, well-qualified candidate for president. I was sorry to see her leave the stage when she did. Okay. Well, it's encouraging, as you say, that there there is some good names out there who, who can be running with uh, on the ticket with Joe Biden. So 
What's your take on the the scenes that you've seen on the past few weeks? I mean, I mean, the obvious thing to say is that as inequality has grown in America the past few years, at some point there's going to be a tipping point and people are going to start to riot because, I mean, just income equality seems to be as, as big a factor as kind of racism in the whole mix. Is that, is that your take on it? Yeah, no, it turns out this is this summer has just turned into the perfect storm for these significant widespread um, and now long-lasting protests. It, it turns out that you're right about the, the context includes dramatic inequality. And in the last three years, where the one thing that the Republican Party was able to do in the first two years, when they had um, they had the White House and both houses of Congress. Uh, it turns out that what was a- happened then was they were able to not adjust or fix health care. They had promised they would kill, you know, uh, Obamacare for years. And then when they had the chance, just couldn't muster, even among themselves, enough, you know, consensus to do that. They tried to do lots of other things, but the one thing they could do was pass a huge tax break, a huge give to the corporations. And what happened was, I think you're right, it spit up overall economic inequality. And there was also a sense of resentment that, look, you know, again, it's the rich getting richer. And that was part of this larger context, because then you get to the spring of 2020, the pandemic, people, you know, ordered inside under these stay-at-home orders, people cooped up. And again, also, the pandemic revealing all types of cracks and fissures in our society along those same economic lines. The poor taking it harder in our country. They have more underlying health issues. They have less access to health care. It's having a disproportionate impact. You know, people say, oh, the virus hits people equally because we're all human beings. I'm like, yeah, but there's this huge disparity pre-existing because of the economic background. Well, that all then gets, it's just more and more tender. And then suddenly what happens is, you know, you get this massive uh, reaction to George Floyd. And I'm, I, I wasn't terribly surprised to see lots and lots of people going out to the streets, even with masks and gloves, even knowing there's a pandemic on, people still turned out and turned out and turned out. Because I think, to me, I mean, it's, it is interesting the amount of kind of white people and Hispanics and all sorts who are also protesting. And that, that suggests to me that it's, it's as much income inequality as well, because poverty is a big issue, you know, in, in a lot of white communities and Hispanic communities across the states. Yeah, and it turns out that that's, I think, part of the reason why the response to it hasn't, it, the protests, when you look at them, when you see who's in the streets, it's not just the African-American community. It turns out that lots of people have turned out for lots of reasons. And I think that at some point, that's the reason why it went beyond just a day or two of protest and then turned into larger rallies and then even, sadly, some rioting and looting, um, which has been 
again, widely condemned, and the risk is that it helps take the focus off of the main issues that are at play. Because those are issues about racial inequality and economic inequality and the fact that we need to dramatically uh, address these issues in our society. And how, how do you address inequality? Because it is such a ginormous yeah. issue. Because, I mean, we, we look at, at this pandemic and we see the kind of uh, Jeff Bezos' is, is, is fortune is blossomed by an extra 30 billion during all this here. And the Walmart has seen increasing sales. And, I mean, it's been a massive wealth transfer even within this current pandemic to the rich and it's almost like how much money <laughs> do people want you know there's hoovering up the wealth of the entire nation uh, it's unbelievable and it turns out that uh you're right that it's i guess not surprising that when you put into place uh, a system that is increasing the divide between the rich and the poor that when you go to an extreme situation like we have now what you're going to see is that just is an accelerant it just widens that gap like you said it's not surprising that bezos and the walmart family are making out like bandits while at the same time now 42 million americans have been suddenly thrown into unemployment it's um it's a massive shift and boy we are really fraying at the edges and of course that's uh the big problem now is the pressure to go back and restart the economy knowing still that we have to counterbalance that with con health concerns uh about public safety given the COVID 19 crisis and and in texas we're seeing that very thing we're seeing we're, we're trying to sort out that battle but what's happened is the the governor, Greg Abbott, introduced a plan and our numbers started to fall and he had phase one reopening of the economy and they started to climb. They leveled off. They started to dip again. We have phase two and they start to climb again. I, I can tell you that right now the numbers, we just crossed over two million cases here in the United States. And... Uh, and in San Antonio, here in Texas, um, again, the New York Times stats, which keep good track of this, our numbers statewide are going up. Um, we set a record for new cases yesterday. And yet, people are saying, oh, we still have to reopen the economy, still get back out there. And so they're, they're you know, that tension right now is being played out very badly and part of the problem is that there's 50 states 50 governors 50 plans and uh without you know a strong sense of a national plan and a national consensus we we get this ad hoc place to place and it's it's turned out to be a mess yeah, because over in Ireland, it's, it's kind of been a strange pandemic because most people are, if they were furloughed, they were getting 80% of their salary, which because you you didn't have commuting expenses and other expenses, childcare basically meant you're, you're on full salary, if, if not more. And so the past three months for us has just been like this kind of pause or long vacation, really. 
Um, now, I know there's a stress if you have young kids in the house, you're meant to be homeschooling and that's a complete pain in the neck. But generally, <laughs> it, it's been it's been okay. You know, the weather's been nice. Um, but it, it shows you, like, the importance, I suppose, of big government and government intervention in these things. Because for the last, pretty much the last 30, 40 years, we have this kind of... Um, you know, let the market decide everything and liberalize as much as possible. And I've I've worked, I've had my own company ever since I was 19, 20. So I appreciate that point of view. But over time, you just kind of realize, look, the state has a, a pretty important role to play <laughs> in a lot of these things. And it's becoming, uh, if anything, after this, it's almost like, you know, the revenge of the state. And we, we probably need... <laughs> more big government and i know it's a particularly unfashionable thing to say in america but do you think there there will be more government intervention coming in soon i i I do and in fact you're right that the last few months have forced us to really rethink the role of government in general um i think we (laughs) you you mentioned earlier in the interview that for a while during the trump administration Things were going along okay. The systems were working, and he was out playing golf, and that seemed to be all right. It when we when we were tested, when we had natural disasters like a hurricane in Puerto Rico, um, the system, the government, kicked in to address these things. And you know, if the president is just tweeting and not having too big an impact on significant policy changes, uh, then you're you're probably okay. But boy, this spring, when you get to this moment, when you get to the pandemic, when you get to the marches in the streets, and suddenly we're being tested, you get, like you said, you get reminded that there is a role, an important role for a federal government in our system, as well as for the states, we have, a, a, of course, a system which balances those things. But, you know, the other thing we're going to see, and again, I think this is maybe it's good to be having this conversation now, is that we're also going to be tested around climate change. The fact of the matter is that's going to demand a strong federal response. And like you said, that's a very unpopular thing to say in the United States. Lots of Americans were, you know, kind of brought up on smaller government is the best government and the fact of the matter is there are some issues the nature of which are going to require a strong national federally coordinated response climate change is one i'm hoping that our response to that in the future is better because of what we're going through now what's your assessment of trump because He's just such a fascinating person. Now, I know there's the obvious, like, I mean, the initial responses could be, you know, complete distaste. But I can imagine in 20 years time, when my son turns around and says to me, Daddy, explain Donald Trump. And I will still be none the wiser because <laughs> everything about the guy just does not make any sense. I mean, we've had, is it over 20,000 verified lies? It just is this kind of weird force field of unreality. You can just say anything, do anything, nothing sticks. It's 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 genius and kind of 
bizarre at the same time. You know, it's, I mean, has your view changed over the initial emotional reaction <laughs> to, to the guy? You know? Have you got a grudging respect? Or... <laughs> yeah. No, uh, I can tell you this, which is uh, I was recently watching the the new Star Trek show, Picard, and at some point someone is describing Picard and they said, well, you know, Picard, what's not ego is all raging id. And I just laughed because it's not a good description of Picard, but I thought, oh my God, that might be a good description of Trump. He, um, he is, uh, he is perhaps the Nash, the natural end result of where the Republican Party was going for years and years and years. Um, it's a place that famously John McCain, when he was his party's candidate for president, he refused to go there, meaning there were lots of people that encouraged him to exploit kind of the dark underbelly of political popularism. And they were saying it will infuriate people. It'll drive them to the polls. You'll get elected. And he's like, I'm not going to do that. Because to him, he had this kind of deep sense of moral character. He had a sense of a commitment to virtues and values. And it turns out, the thing about Trump is, because he... He doesn't have that. He's transparent. He's the most transparent person I've ever encountered. He just does whatever works. Because he didn't become president of the United States because he voted for himself 62 million times. What he did was he exploited the tens of millions of Americans who could be and were shaped and formed by this kind of anger and this kind of frustration. And he, he was just able to, to focus all of that. And at some point, you remember famously, Hillary Clinton during the campaign is looking at this with shock and says, oh my God, you know, a lot of these people are just deplorable. They're, they're deplorables. And I, I, I think she she shouldn't have, first of all she shouldn't have said it because what she said was they those people are deplorables and i think what she was trying to say was oh look these are americans these are human beings they're our fellow citizens and right now they're kind of acting deplorably they're tapping into the worst of our human nature and so what should our reaction to that be and i think our reaction to that should be not to condemn them but to help them say, look, look what's going on. Look what's happening. Let's try to identify that and step back from that. Uh, that's a, the problem with me saying that is it sounds like I'm being very condescending when I'm trying to say, we need to find a way to have discourse, productive civic engagement with our fellow citizens across wide, wide political ideology differences. And that's a challenge. Well, those differences are getting bigger all the time. And I, I don't think have you ever known a more polarizing time in American history during your lifetime? 
Uh, well, not during my lifetime. Don't forget, we had a civil war, which, you know, the, still the, sing, <laughs> the single deadliest day in American history is Antietam because it was Americans killing Americans. That's 17,000 people in a single day. So, yeah, we've had deep political divides in the past, and we have settled them on the battlefield. It's shocking to me that 150 years later, we're still now arguing about Civil War memorials and statues in the Capitol building. Nancy Pelosi today is saying maybe we should take out the statues of people who were, you know, charged with and convicted of treason. Why are they still in the Capitol building? That's that's a good question, actually. And how do you think social media, Facebook, Twitter, all these things, you know, the kind of the rage machine <laughs> is this? Because, I mean, it's probably more of a bigger influence now than, you know, your traditional Fox News or, or the media that people are in these kind of little personalized echo chambers where they're just kind of hearing what they want to hear and being fed whatever bizarre conspiracy theories is, is fashionable that day. Yeah, and you're right that the rise of social media has been uh, a game changer, if for no other reason, that smart people have figured out how to abuse it and how to take advantage of it. Um, you know, we had a big investigation into the 2016 election and Russian interference. And it, what became clear is that they figured that out. They could ramp up the rage machine, like you said, and create this anger that ended up driving people to the polls and by targeting that into key areas, often with just misinformation and conspiracy theories and nonsense, but it was enough to be able to drive up, gin up this anger and increase turnout by people who were looking to go out and cast the anti-vote, the anti-system, the anti-deep you know, deep state. And it worked, and Trump got elected. It's, it's unbelievable when you see the targeted application of Russian propaganda and bots that, again, has been detailed in these congressional investigations. It's amazing that it's not, a to me, a bigger story, especially as we prepare for the upcoming election in November. We're 150 days out now, and it's happening again. Yeah, I mean, do you think there will be an election, or do you think he'll try to postpone it? Because I know, I know he's, <laughs> he's very scared of postal ballots, isn't he? And do you think he'll try to come up with some kind of ruse to put it off? Or? Uh, he, he has famously been saying that he uh, is discrediting the election before it happens. He wants to make sure that people know. He, he thinks if he talks enough about voter fraud and about mail ballots and all these other things, that it will provide an excuse for him, a rationale to soften the blow to his ego if he loses. Uh, now, I think some people go beyond that and they say, oh, no, he's planning – He's laying the groundwork to stay in office and say, well, that election didn't count or we just won't have an election, this kind of stuff. And I think that that's that's too far. That's too fanciful. in it's thinking not least of which is we've been reminded recently uh, by the military, by the generals. If you famously remember, he stocked his first cabinet in office with lots and lots of generals uh, that uh, they're saying, look, that's. What we look out in the streets now, it's not a place for us to be putting our military. That's not what the military is for. We're not going to do crowd control on our citizens. 
And they've been pushing back against that and reminding the president that the military does not follow illegal orders. That's not their job. So I'm not worried about Trump being forced out in November. I think right now, if the election was held, he'd lose badly. If those numbers hold up, he'll lose badly in November. And uh, I think he'll do what he has always done, which is he will complain about it on Twitter, and then he'll pack his bags and go to Florida. Mm, that's uh, We can, but watch this space. Um, <laughs> yeah. I've been well, wrong your... before. <laughs> <laughs> um, with your uh, study of, of of the classics, I mean, do you, do you ever consider that you're you're kind of watching the fall of an empire here in kind of real time? I I am concerned that um that the the reputation of the United States around the world is suffering greatly. This is just you know people ask. Who's enjoying seeing Donald Trump's bad reaction to first the pandemic and now to the protests? And the answer to that is no one's happier than China and Russia because they see our diminishing role in the world and they think that helps them. Uh, I, you know, there's number, there's incredibly just dozens of really good articles and essays and opinion pieces right now and foreign policy and other places that are just detailing the dramatic impact that this is having on the reputation of the United States around the world. And again, the thing I lose sleep over is this, which is let's say that we moved back to a quote unquote more normal president, whether that's Biden and a Democrat, or even if it was a a more centrist Republican candidate, you know, uh, a Romney uh, or a McCain. The problem is, in the future, they're going to sit down with foreign leaders and they're going to say, look, I know we went through a really difficult, stressful time. I'm sorry about that. We voted him out. We're here again to say we believe in international treaties. We believe in trade agreements. We, we want to make, you know, renew our commitment to international security agreements and to international trade. The problem is they're going to, I think, rightfully look at us and say, well, sure, you're going to do that, but how do I know I don't get another Trump down the line? Mm -hmm. And that's a tough argument to address. The How can I trust you again when you've just burned me? That's, that's going to make rebuilding relationships with other countries, very, very difficult. Now, given uh, if, we, if we move back to your day job as a professor of philosophy, um, <laughs> okay. what, 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 what can philosophy teach us about how to cope in, the, in these times of, of turbulence? Because I know uh, stoicism is, is very back in fashion these days after, what, <laughs> 3,000 years? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so uh, have you any, do you, do you give your students any kind of tips on how to kind of cope with such kind of change and in society? Uh, sure, there's two things that I would mention, one of which is um, part of my job is teaching students about ethics. And I, I tell them, look, one of the reasons we look at ethical case studies and we look at all these different moral theories is so that we can learn about these now because eventually, soon, 
we're going to be facing difficult, very real ethical choices. We're going to have to, even in a crisis, decide what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's bad, and act. And so I tell them, you know, don't dismiss this as being some kind of, you know, academic exercise that's not related to your real life. It is. The fact of the matter is, if you do this now, if you think your way through it, if you clarify your values, if you understand the choices, that'll make your future choices easier. And so they kind of get that and they understand that in order to do that, you have to be able to do risk analysis. You have to understand what's what are my real choices? What's the sources of authority I can rely on to get good information? And as I said earlier, these things are being shaken in our country right now. And so um, that's kind of the the in general what I'm trying to teach my students in class. I can tell you one very particular new thing that we're doing, which is at St. Philip's College, where I teach, is a historically black college. It's also now a Hispanic serving institution. And we're working with some partners to develop um, civil disagreement fellows, meaning that we're going to identify a small cohort of students who are going to go through training about how to talk to people across these deep political ideological divides. We're going to say to them, look, now is an important time for us to figure out how to have meaningful, productive exchanges and we're going to train you, and then hopefully what we're going to do is have you sponsor these conversations. And so there'll be student-led programs by students who've been trained and how to sit down and work through very difficult conversations. It's, um, I think it's a good idea. I think we're trying to sort out the details of that now. We're hoping to start it this fall. Um, as part of a, a partnership with five other schools, but I'm hopeful that um, that our six students and the students from the other schools, that total group of 36, are able to have a real meaningful impact on civil discourse in the United States. I imagine we could use some of that back in Northern Ireland. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, we, you're, uh, you're right about that. Well, that could be a that could be a second podcast if you if you must down the line when it gets kicked <laughs> off. Um, so Andy, I think we're, we're running out of time. Sure. Um, just before we finish, uh, is there any kind of tear free books or TV shows, podcasts that you kind of recommend to people? Uh, it turns out I'll, I'll do two things. One of which is I do say to my students that they have to have a balance of the information and sources that they bring in. So I'll tell them there's not a single book or news source that I recommend, you, you've got to get a balance. And that's difficult and time consuming, especially in the middle of their busy lives. You know, the joke is that they've got, uh, in addition to their studies, two jobs and three kids, and they're trying to sort all this out. But um, there's a couple of things that I, I would recommend. Um, Keeping Faith with Human Rights by Linda Hogan is a great book about human rights and about the challenges to them. That's terribly important right now um, because um, 
we have to understand what's at risk in the streets. We, we had famously when President uh, Trump wanted to go across the street to take his Bible to the church and say that, look, I'm restoring law and order. That was the state tear gassing and, and uh, you know, physically pushing back protesters, not looters, not rioters, people who were peacefully, nonviolently protesting in the streets. They have a right to do that. They were doing it under the permits allowed by the city. That's that's a huge thing. And, and people have kind of brushed it off and moved on to the next thing. And if you have a better understanding of your legal rights and how they're based in our fundamental human rights, that will help people appreciate what's at stake now. So I do recommend Linda Hogan's book. And um, and again, for a larger context, I'd recommend anything by Gladys Gunnell, great Northern Irish writer. And uh, so I would I could tell you that her thinking on religious background has also been very important, especially for my analysis of that situation of the march across the street with the Bible in hand to the church. You've got to understand the role of of religion in society and for us the separation of church and state and what that looks like. So those are uh, two writers I would recommend, Gladys Canal and Linda Hogan. Thanks very much. Right, Andy, I think we'll we'll wrap it up there. Um, now, if you've enjoyed today's podcast, you can subscribe to future podcasts. So just say, Andy, thanks very much for your time. I appreciate that. Uh, my pleasure. Okay, and we'll have links to your, your uh, Twitter profile and stuff like that on, on the podcast. Thanks very much. The Slugger O'Toole podcast is sponsored by Queen University Belfast. Researchers at Queen's are at the heart of supporting global efforts to understand the coronavirus. To discover more about their research, please visit qeb.ac.uk.